Has anyone here ever heard or read about somewhere uh, about the difficulties people face when climbing Mount Everest? Anyone? Good, see some hands. Climbing Mount Everest is exceptionally dangerous. Uh, along the route to the top, there is a lot of crevices that you can fall into. There's this ever lurking threat of an avalanche that could come at any time and sweep you away. And when you get above the 8,000 meter mark, which there's only eight mountains in the entire world that, that go this high and all in the Himalayas, when you get that high, there isn't enough oxygen to sustain human life, and so it's called the death zone. And if you're up there too long without oxygen, you'll die. And many people, they pass out in the death zone, fall asleep to never wake up again. The current death rate of climbing Mount Everest is 6.5%. And that's not even the most dangerous one. There's one that's closer to 50. But here's the point I'm getting at. In order to make it to the top of Everest, in order to make it to the top, you will have to make a long and dangerous journey. Scripture also speaks of, of our journey to eternity as being dangerous and difficult. The road of faith has many traps that we can fall into. Satan wants to devour us, and we have never-ending temptations to sow to the flesh rather than to the spirit. And if we sow to the flesh, the flesh's cravings for a particular sin becomes stronger and more difficult to resist. And one of Paul's points in, in Galatians actually is, is not to sow to the flesh because if you sow to the flesh, you will reawaken the flesh and the flesh will overtake you and you'll fall away. There's also the threat of false teachers and, and teaching. And if we compare our journey to eternity to climbing Mount Everest, we could say that the devil, our own flesh, false teachers, these are the avalanches, the, the crevices uh, to cross, or the lack of oxygen in the danger zone. Jesus described the path to eternal joy as a, as a difficult journey. Listen to what he says in Matthew 7. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And yet we're commanded, we're commanded to make that journey. And we can't fall away from the path. What happens to us if we fall away and we don't make the journey? What happens to us? Many people today teach that if you somehow, or if someone at any point in their life, if they profess faith, they made a sincere profession is what they say, they are saved and will be saved forever. Repentance and, and continuing to walk the narrow way is simply to them a suggestion or an option, not a necessity. And so for people who believe this, when they hear about someone who made a profession of faith, even if it lasted for just a few days, but currently today they, they're even denying God by their mouth or by their actions, they would say that they are still saved today. Once saved, always saved. And I personally know many family members 
and friends who, because of this teaching, believe that they are eternally saved, even though they have no concern for eternal things. I myself, while living like an absolute devil, instead of being told to repent, have been told that if I was sincere at one point when I repeated a prayer, then I'm eternally secure. I'm saved. Living for God is a suggestion. Almost 62% of people in America are nominal Christians who have no concern for holiness. And these people that teach that a one-time decision eternally saves a person would say that nominal Christians are saved. What's going to happen to them? The answer to that question, what happens if we fall away? What happens if we're no longer in the faith or even denying God? They lose a reward. While it is true that many genuine Christians, genuine Christians will actually lose rewards, the apostate who denies God with their mouth or with their actions are not in danger of losing rewards. They're in danger of eternal punishment. Listen to a few verses and I'm going to explain them afterwards. And there's no text today, it's various texts, so going to different places. Jesus says that every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Paul in Galatians says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will also from the flesh reap corruption. Jesus in Matthew 7 said, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out many demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. And we could go on and on with so many examples like this. But notice that in all of these examples, that the people being spoken of here who are going to be eternally destroyed, they would all claim to be disciples. Rather than say that a one-time decision eternally saves a person, Jesus and Paul say the opposite. Easy believism, faith without repentance, mere intellectual assent without holiness, wanting Jesus as Savior but not as Lord is dangerous. Because it gives assurance to people who shouldn't have assurance. And it eases their conscience that they're saved as they continue to live a life that will ultimately lead to them being destroyed. Last week, we laid a a foundation for eternal security that true believers will be saved eternally because it ultimately depends on the triune God and not on us. And I want true believers to take security in that. I want them to hold on to that. I want true believers to have joy in the assurance that God will carry them home. But I also want to make very clear that when I speak about eternal security, I am not saying that any and everyone that makes a profession of faith is eternally saved. 
regardless of how they're living today. Praying the sinner's prayer once in your life or professing faith for a season isn't what scripture teaches is the mark of the eternally secure Christian. The Bible teaches that the mark of true believers, the ones that are in Jesus' hands, are the ones who persevere. Jesus says, you will be saved if you endure to the end. At the end of Peter's first epistle, he tells his readers, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Jude 21 says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. In the book of Hebrews, the the author he relates the, the life of faith as running a race or a marathon, and he urges us to cut away sin and weights that, that make it so that we don't reach it to the end and receive the final reward. We are called to persevere in faith, and when connecting that to eternal security, perseverance is the mark of the eternally secure person. Perseverance is the evidence of our salvation. I want to say up front, today we're going to look at some, some sobering realities in Scripture, things that are true, that are there for our good, but yes, they're not always the, the easiest things to hear. But we're also going to see some encouraging things. And so I want there to be a, a twofold effect here. I want Christians to leave here encouraged and assured that they are eternally secure and with a healthy realization of the necessity to persevere. I I don't want to beat a true Christian up. I don't want to beat genuine believers up. But I also want the sermon to awaken people who profess the name of Jesus but are settling into a mindset that makes peace with sin and are weary, and are contemplating giving up on the race. What is perseverance? If we have to persevere to the end, we better know what that means. The way the Bible explains perseverance is it's overcoming temptations by Satan, the temptations of the flesh, temptations of or false teachers, and is living a life marked by faith and repentance until death or the Lord returns. I'll say that again. Perseverance is overcoming the temptations of Satan, the temptations of the flesh, false teachers, and is living a life marked by repentance and faith until, the, until our death or until the Lord returns. I want to be clear that I am not talking about perfect perseverance. First John says that anyone who says they have no sin is a liar and the truth is not in them. In, in Philippians, Paul is saying that he wants the, the, to attain the resurrection of the dead so bad that he has a life, a life 
a laser-like focus on attaining the resurrection from the dead, and he admits that he strives for perfection because of that, but he admits clearly, I haven't reached perfection. And so what's being said in these passages is that though we are running a race that requires perseverance, it's an imperfect race we're running. We are still sinners. There are many seasons in a Christian life, a Christian's life where the Christian is weighed down, barely running the race, seasons where we're blindly looking at idols, seasons where we fall off the narrow path. So it's not perfect, but the true, genuine Christian is marked by someone who doesn't abandon the race altogether. They keep repenting, they keep believing. Let me ask you a question. How does our working to stay on the narrow path, our, our fighting sin, our fight for holiness, how does that harmonize with the fact that God has determined that we're eternally secure? I'll say it another way. If God has already determined that those with genuine faith will make it to the end, then why is all the effort on our part necessary? Why not just sit back, relax, and take it easy? Why even teach perseverance? To put it simply, it's because God's decree that we will be holy and blameless before him in eternity becomes a true, vibrant reality in our lives now. God's decree that we will be holy becomes a vibrant, true reality in our lives today. In other words, if you have genuine faith, then God has decreed your eternal security. And he's also decreed that you will be holy and persevere. And so growing in holiness and perseverance becomes a reality in your life as you believe. If God has decreed that you will make it to the end, that decree will work itself out in your life. And this decree to be holy and to persevere will lead you to strive to stay on the narrow path. It will lead you to fight the sin that threatens to take you away from God. I'll say it another way. Everyone God decreed to be eternally secure, Jeremiah states that they have the fear of God in their heart to not turn away from him. And you will see that healthy fear in your heart as a reality in your life in you persevering in faith and being careful to obey God. When God saves a person, he changes that person. We talked about God's revealed and hidden wills last time and his hidden will of decree for your eternal salvation and holiness. This isn't some divine ivory tower exercise in futility. It has a real effect in our lives. Now on the opposite of this, the, the flip side of all this, because God decrees that true believers will persevere by fighting sin, that means that if you aren't fighting sin in your lives, if you aren't striving towards holiness, if repentance doesn't mark your life, then it's, one, it's healthy to wonder if you're in the faith. 
The mark of a true Christian is the fight against sin and a hunger for holiness. The evidence of a false convert is being complacent with sin. Someone who makes excuses and makes peace with their sin. And making peace with sin is very, very dangerous. In fact, making peace, peace with sin is what the author of Hebrews says, that's what apostates do. That's what he means when he talks about if we go on sinning willfully. He's talking about a mindset that has made peace with sin, and making peace with sin is a path that has left the pursuit of the eternal reward. Making peace with sin is a path to apostasy. And according to Hebrews, committing apostasy isn't necessarily denying Jesus with our mouth. Many of the recipients of Hebrews would have still professed Jesus as many nominal Christians do today. We can commit, we can commit apostasy by denying Jesus with our actions. And perhaps the worst place somebody could possibly be is when people use the grace of God as an excuse to enjoy sin. They're like the people who Paul talks about in Romans 6 that says, why don't we continue in faith that God's grace, or why don't we continue in sin that God's grace might abound? To someone that thinks like that, to that kind of mindset with that complacency, complacency, Scripture wants to give no assurance of eternal security. Scripture teaches us to lovingly rebuke and warn people. Peter tells us here is, make your calling and election sure. I'm sure we've all read uh, First and Second Corinthians and we've seen all the problems in the, the Corinthian church. And when Paul sees them living in an unrepentant sin, an unrepentant lifestyle, he didn't tell them oh, it's okay, the grace of God covers that. He said, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And I want to be clear here. When we sin and repent from our sin, the grace of God does cover our sin. But the key here is our attitude towards sin. Is there a fight? The fight is the key. The fight shows real faith. The fight shows God's decree of perseverance for our life. And Paul, he, he told the Corinthians to examine themselves because he assumes, this is the theology he assumes, that if they're saved, then they're going to strive for holiness because God sanctifies everyone that he's going to glorify. And because he doesn't see sanctification in their life, he's concerned that they're not going to be glorified. And that's the one important point I want to take away because everyone that's truly saved is also sanctified. And so if we see evidence to the contrary, we should be concerned. We went to Costco a few weeks ago. Let's, let's go back there. Remember we said that if you don't have a Costco card, you can't get into the club. Remember we said that. But the card is simply the necessary evidence to show that you're a member of Costco. 
The card isn't what actually buys your membership into the club. What actually counts? What actually determines if you're in the club or not? It's the money that you pay. And so if a worker at Costco sees someone walk in without a membership card, he might rightly assume that they never paid the money for their membership. And similarly, when we see people claiming Jesus without their membership card, which is perseverance in faith and holy living, when we see people without these things, we shouldn't assure people that their membership has been paid or that they're eternally secure. We are supposed to be concerned and urge them to repent and demonstrate that they're saved. Or put it another way, um, if someone tells you that they're, uh, let's say, a Lakers fan, but they don't ever talk about the Lakers, they don't own any Lakers clothing or gear, and you even, they barely even know anyone on the roster, and you even find out that they never watch any Lakers games, you would conclude that maybe they're not really a Lakers fan. And if we see someone who has no concern about God or eternal things, no interest in the word or coming to church, you might begin to wonder if they're actually really a Christian. And we are supposed to warn them. The rebuke is one of God's means to helping true believers persevere. Yes, a true believer can get to that point, but a rebuke can bring him back. I occasionally listen to a pastor named John Piper, and I remember listening to a story he told. He's told it several times, but I heard the story years ago. He had a, a counseling session that he had with a, uh, one of the female members of his church, and she was having an affair with a man, and she told John Piper she's having an affair, and John Piper looked at her and he said, you're going to stop doing that immediately. Christians don't do that. And the woman responded that, essentially saying that she saw obedience as an option, saying, yes, God, he would prefer me to, to stop committing this sin, but he loves me. And because Piper saw that she was making excuses for her sin and making peace with her sin, he said to her lovingly but bluntly, if you don't stop this affair, if you don't repent, Scripture teaches that you'll go to hell. Guess how she responded? She quoted him Romans 8, and said, I am certain that neither death nor life, nor things present nor things to come can ever separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Piper explained to her why she's missing the point there. And he said that the woman went home, thought about everything, and then she ended the affair immediately. And she said that when he spoke to her like that, she saw the seriousness of what she was doing. And Piper said that she writes him a letter every single year thanking him for being so honest with her. 
The woman's repentance was evidence that she is a true believer. Rebukes are not mean. They're God's means to help us persevere. And so, therefore, loving and gracious. Is teaching perseverance teaching salvation by works? No. Teaching perseverance isn't teaching salvation by works because perseverance isn't the grounds, it's not the reasons that we're saved. Perseverance is the evidence that we're saved. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast to the end. The author of Hebrews is saying that the evidence of seeing that we are a genuine believer and a partaker of Jesus past tense is perseverance making it to the end. We need to understand the difference between the grounds and reasons for our salvation and what is simply the evidence of our salvation. If you say your perseverance is the reason you're saved, that's salvation by works. But if you say, I believe God has saved me based on the work of Jesus Christ alone because I see the evidence of the changes in my life and the fact that I still believe today despite everything I've been through, that's not salvation by works. You're believing works are the evidence of your salvation. Another way we could speak about this is that justification is God declaring us to be righteous or in the right. And that declaration of innocence and forgiveness is based on grace alone through the work of Jesus Christ alone. We're saved based on the work of Jesus, nothing else. Justification has no transforming effect. It's completely forensic, that means it's legal language. It's like being in a courtroom and a judge slamming a gavel and saying not not guilty or innocent. That doesn't change you in any way. It's just a, a legal status that determines whether you're a criminal in society or you're innocent. And so biblical justification is simply God making a a declaration about our eternal status as either a criminal that's going to be punished or as an innocent person in his son. And if justification is God declaring us to be righteous, sanctification is us becoming who God declared us to be. Sanctification is not the reason we're saved, but because everyone, every single person that is justified is also sanctified, we should rightly see the evidence of sanctification in a professing believer's life. These two, sanctification and justification, they're different parts of salvation, but are inseparable in the sense that every single person justified is also sanctified. They go together. And so that would mean that everyone who is saved and eternally secure, we should also see growing in holiness. And so calling someone to perseverance isn't teaching salvation by works. It's saying, demonstrate you're a Christian because every forgiven Christian perseveres.
We talked a lot last week about how it is an absolute certainty that every true believer will be eternally saved because it ultimately depends on God. But this week we're talking a whole lot about how glorification is conditional in that we have to persevere in repentance and faith. So I want to ask you, does the conditionality or the conditional nature of glorification by perseverance in any way negate the certainty of our eternal security? I'll say that again. Does the conditionality of our glorification by perseverance in any way negate the certainty of our eternal security? Am I talking out of both sides of my mouth? I don't think so. Election, which is the beginning of salvation, whatever you think it is, is unconditional. That is unconditional. It's an unconditional choice decreed by God that we will be eternally saved and secure. Glorification, the end of salvation, is conditional. Conditional on whether or not we persevere in faith and fighting sin. How does unconditional election fit with conditional glorification? I thought about this a lot this week, and here's how I see these two coming together. God works in those who are unconditionally elected and eternally secure to meet the necessary conditions to glorification. I'll say that again. God works in those who are unconditionally elected and eternally secure and saved to meet the necessary conditions for glorification. In other words, if God has decreed that we will be eternally saved, but he also said that the necessary condition is perseverance, he will work in us through his spirit to meet the condition of perseverance. Paul says in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Now this verse assumes that a good work has to continue until the end or you won't be saved. If the good work in you dies out and goes away, you're in trouble. Glorification is conditional on that perseverance, on that continuing work. But look at who the verse says is responsible for you persevering in, in the new work and the good work staying within you. God. God will complete the good work. He will make you holy and persevere. We see that we have the responsibility to not fall away from the faith, to not stumble, and if we fall away, we won't be saved. But we see in Jude that God is the one who keeps us from stumbling. Paul, he wrote to believers saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is working in you. So once again, we see both things. We see the necessary condition of working and fighting against sin. Those two, it has to happen. You have to work and you have to fight against sin and persevere. But we also see God working in us to make sure that we meet that condition. 
God sets the condition of perseverance and then works in us to make sure that we meet the very conditions that he requires. And that's why I stressed last week that our eternal security and salvation, it ultimately depends on God. We do all the striving, working, and persevering on our part, but when we pull back the curtain, behind all of that striving is God through the Spirit working in us. And if we are His, if we are eternally secure and we stray from the hard, narrow way, God will bring us back. And that's because God is our Father and will lovingly discipline us. Listen to Hebrews 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as a son? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastises every son he receives. He says, so it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are an illegitimate child and not a son. And so if we are a true believer, a true son, we will never turn away from God because God is our father and he is committed to disciplining us, putting whatever he has to in our way to keep us on the narrow path. Sometimes that comes through rebuke of the word. Jesus, when talking to believers at Laodicea in Revelation, and I, I think they are believers for a few different reasons, he gives them a strong, hard rebuke through his words. And, and we can see, I think, that they're believers by Jesus' comment to them, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Meaning the very fact that I'm even telling you this means I love you and you're mine. And if they didn't belong to him, he wouldn't rebuke them. When David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed, he didn't repent for an entire year. He got way off the path, and so God sent the prophet Nathan to rebuke him with a harsh word. Paul, in 2 Corinthians he said to the Corinthians that in my first letter, I, I, I know I wrote a harsh letter to you. Uh, and he said that he did that, though, to see that they would repent. He, he wrote it a hard letter so that they would repent. So God disciplines us one way through the word. God also disciplines us through suffering. The Hebrews... They were having their, their stuff taken away. They were being plundered. They were being persecuted. And that's why they, one reason they were ready to give up on the faith. But the author of Hebrews said it was a loving discipline of the Lord proving that they're legitimate sons. He's saying, don't take what's happening to you, the suffering that you're going through lightly. This is the discipline of the Lord to help you keep going. It's to wake you up. God gave Paul a, a physical sickness, uh, what he called a thorn in the flesh, so that he wouldn't become arrogant. 
And if you have an issue with God sometimes using sickness or, or financial struggles in a Christian life to discipline us, then you are seeing discipline as something negative rather than positive. And you're failing to see what's ultimately important in God's mind. When it comes to your physical health and prosperity, yes, God, God cares about that, but it's not even close to how much he cares about your eternal salvation. If you get brain tumor, something like that, you'll have a new brain in the new creation. That's where he wants you at. Not, not, not to say that all suffering is a result of of sin, even if you aren't sinning in some particular sin, God still disciplines like you would discipline your child, though. Go to bed at this time, do this. It's, it's just trials that God puts in our lives, even if there's not some great sin in our lives. God puts suffering in our lives to show us just how bankrupt our idols of money, sex, and other things are. He wants us to see just how futile our idols are so that we find our all in all in him. Embrace the loving discipline of the Lord. And when you do see that, as, as Hebrews says, if you see discipline in, the, in, in your life, rejoice in that because it means you are a true daughter or a true son. You if you are a believer, you will persevere to the end because God is committed to disciplining you in whatever way he needs to to make sure you stay on the narrow path. So we see, to summarize that last point, the necessity of perseverance to make it to glory, but also God working in those he eternally saved to meet the conditions. If you're listening in or, or here and, and maybe at one time in your life you think that you made a, a decision for Jesus Christ, but there's no hatred of sin in your life, there's no love of holiness or the things of God, no care for or concern for eternal things, then I cannot give you any assurance that you're saved this morning. If, all I can say is this, if you can repent and truly trust in Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord, you will be forgiven. Whatever you've done. Because of the payment that Jesus made as a substitution for our sins on the cross, that's why you can be forgiven. Repent and believe the gospel. Though the climb up Mount Everest is extremely dangerous. A lot of potential dangers. They have workers there that, that help you make it to the top. They're called Sherpas. And these Sherpas, they, they guide the, the brave climbers all the way up the mountain. And every time they venture into a dangerous situation, a Sherpa is right there to help them with whatever they need. If they have a crevice that they need to cross, they provide ladders or a walking rope. They provide oxygen tanks when they, need, when they reach the death zone. They carry the climbers' bags and sometimes even carry them when it looks like climbers can't go on anymore. And 
And on our journey to eternal glory, we'll see that every time we were about to fall into a pit, he kept us from stumbling. Every time we were weighed down and too tired to go on, it was then that he carried us. Every time we went off the path by willful sinning, it was then that he sent someone to correct us, or we saw it in the word. Yes, we have to persevere. Yes, we have to make it to the mountaintop or we'll perish. But when we finally get there, what we're going to find is that it was not because of us, but it was God who gave us exactly what we needed when we needed it to persevere to the end. And because God is the one doing it, that's where you can find your security. That's where you can find your assurance that there's nothing going to happen in your life that he won't help you get through. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have told us that we are forever in Jesus' hand and nothing can take us apart but for some reason in your wisdom, you have not spared us from the things that want to grip us and rip us from Jesus' hand. We have not been spared from that. We have to overcome that. We have to fight that. But we know at the same time, you have your hand on us and you won't ever let us go. I pray, Father, for the believers here to leave with a healthy realization of the necessity of perseverance. And I pray for someone who, perhaps a true believer, has, has, some, has become entangled with sin, that you would, you would use this as a rebuke to, to help them overcome that in their lives. And I pray for those listening in that has never, never believed in Jesus Christ would come to believe in him for the first time. And we ask you these things and pray all of them in Jesus' name. Amen.